9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Father, we, we love you. We so love your word. We love to learn from it. Father, today show us something about you that we have not seen before. Father, be with Grant as he shares with us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, partner. Appreciate you. Well, do you have your copy of the scriptures open to Hebrews? That's good. We'll be there for a while. <laughs> Oh, you are God with us. Because we couldn't get to Him. Because we needed Him to be God with us. Yeah. Last week in Hebrews, uh, really, I don't know if simple is the way to put it, but very straightforward passage, very, very beautiful, very challenging, just on the the start of it, it started, you'll remember, in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. And I think all of us go, that's a good word. We need to pay closer attention. In my life, I need to forget about the distractions. I need to, to focus in on the things that I've heard about Christ. I need to focus in on the gospel. Is it not just the church's mission statement to be loved and worship, but is it my personal? Is this, is this what I'm about, to focus on God's love for me and respond? Bond and worship. And so far um, in Hebrews, the author has had a lot to say about the greatness of Jesus. And for good reason. That's where it starts. We don't, we don't decide. Like, it, it's all about who Jesus is. It's just all about if Jesus is God, follow him. If he's not, what are we doing here? And so Hebrews has, has started off just so highly Christological, just talking about the greatness of Jesus, who Jesus is. He is the exalted son, chapter 1 told us. He is the king of the universe. Remember in, in that he was at the beginning when everything was created. He's the sustainer of the universe. He is in all, through all, holding everything together. He is reigning on high over and over. We've heard, um, you know, he is high and lifted up. He is majesty, seated at the right hand of God. He has the most excellent name, creator, sustainer. We talked about what that excellent name he inherited in his earthly ministry was, that he is the one and only begotten son. That, that he, when we are looking at Jesus, we are looking at the very character of God. Phew! Let's pray and go home. And it's a, Hebrews is a very beautiful, very elegant, very methodical argument. You know, this is stuff that you go, I could explain this very quickly in one, like I just did, right? Jesus is great. He's the king. He died for your sins. There you go. But the author of Hebrews, because he is dealing with people, he is writing to people who have a deep, 
theological mindset rooted in the Old Testament, there the Hebrew scriptures, the argument through Hebrews is going to be that kind of argument. It's going to be methodical and theological. And as this argument kind of continues today, we'll start looking at the next question after who is Jesus? Because it all starts with who Jesus is, but immediately the question has to come to us. So what's that mean for me? God, I need you not only to tell me about you, I need you to tell me about me. Where do humans fit in, in this majesty of Jesus? Because it's my heart. And as I've been praying for you, as I prayed for you guys this morning, it, it, it's, it's one thing to admire Jesus. And then to go and go, well, Jesus is so great, like there's not going to be any grants achieving Jesus likeness. You know, like I'm I know how frail and fragile and selfish I can be. So it would be easy to go, man, I just am glad to admire Jesus. And it has to start there with admiration, with adoration. But if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we have to think about another piece of it that not only do I see the greatness of Jesus, but I see the desperate need that I have. I see the lowliness of me. I see not only that Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is the one to admire and adore, but I also look at myself and go, I'm nothing like him. I need a savior. And you're not a disciple. You can even be a theologian. There are New Testament scholars that have not come up with the idea that I am wretched and I need a Savior. When you look at the greatness of Jesus and you look at our need, well, that's how you get a follower of Jesus. That's how you get someone who's willing to forsake all others, get rid of idolatry, get rid of selfishness, and actually follow Jesus with the rest of our lives. So to understand the argument today, of course, we'll, we'll need to kind of get into the head of a first century Jew. We'll need to upload a few things um, because this, the author is thinking theologically and we should too. And, and so three categories, welcome to Theo 101. We'll, we'll in about four minutes, we'll, we'll try to think of three big ideas to frame our reading of this. Um, first of all, we need something, some understanding of anthropology. So anthropology is just what does it mean to be human, right? So the two big ideas, uh, Caleb, I am, I'm not, I did not get my act together. If you could try to follow me, it'd be great. Thank you very much. Um, I was so busy showing you guys my home screen, I forgot to get the remote uh, going. Um, but anthropology is asking the question, what's it mean to be human? What, what, what is a human? It's, it's pretty interesting. You go, gosh, this seems kind of boring, man. The more like AI and cyber stuff and whatever grows more and more it's really important to have answers to what you know what is it what what makes a human and theologically we're left with kind of two big ideas first of all what it means to be human is that we're made in God's image we are the ones that God has ordained to reign over creation on behalf of God not that we were supposed to do see some people um, take uh, the image of God to mean we are little gods, and that means we can do whatever we want. But that is a completely broken understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. Rather, it is that we are God's ambassadors, that as our first father and mother were placed in Eden and told, hey, I want you to steward this, I want you to image me to the rest of the world. It is not only identity, but it is responsibility. 
And every identity is a responsibility. And when you, because of our evil hearts, we tend to like the identity without the responsibility. Oh, I'm the boss around here. Oh, I like saying that. But, well, that's a responsibility. That means it's my job to care for the people who are relying on me. Oh, I'm the dad. What I say goes. Oh, is that right, big man? Here's the thing. What that means is that you have the responsibility to care, nurture, provide, protect, and sustain this family. So we like, in our selfishness, we like the identity we have in Christ or, or in, as the image bearers of God, but we neglect the responsibility that comes with that um, name, with that identity. So the, the first big idea is that God, uh, what it means to be human is that we are made as God's ambassadors in the image we're supposed to spread Eden to expand the reign of God that Adam and Eve were intended to just grow Eden until it covered the earth, until the, the reign of God was all that there was on God's behalf, in his name. That's why we even pray in Jesus' name. The second big idea uh, that we need to get thinking about theologically about what it means to be a human is simply this, we're fallen. Not only are we made in the image of God, but we're broken images of God. And you can't have half of that and not the other half. Because we are, well, there's great honor in being human because we're created the image, but there's great darkness because we're fallen. We aren't reigning over the creation like we should. We aren't stewarding the relationships in our lives or the the earth or our time or our own bodies, we're, we're doing it in a broken way. We aren't following the direction of our king like we should. We're, it's like we're an emissary gone rogue. It's almost like God, imagine a good king who sends his representative to a foreign land and goes, man, I would like for you to set order in that foreign land and I would like for you to make it a place of forgiveness and grace and I want you to make sure that every aspect of this foreign land is just flavored with my goodness. Be sure everybody has enough and be sure everybody has, is loved and be sure that everybody's cared for and be sure that the, the, the ground is farmed well and be sure that you do all of the right things for a sustainable um, uh, like economy and ecosystem and all that stuff. And then as the selfish version, we go to that other land and go, the king sent me, you got to do what I want. And so a broken society grows. That's a pretty good biblical understanding of who, what it means to be human. That we, in being made in the image bearers of God, there's great glory and honor. In our selfishness and sin, We've made a mess of things. God's image bearers, but God's fallen image bearers. The other kind of theological thing we need to kind of get our heads around is just Christology. Who, so if that's who, what a human is, who is Jesus? And, and what is Jesus' nature? The discussion in Hebrews follows closely after Paul's teaching about both humanity and Jesus that, God, that Jesus is, chapter 1 was full of both of these, that Jesus is fully God. Much of chapter 1 was giving evidence, bearing witness to the divine nature of Jesus, but that Jesus is also fully human. This is important because, after all, it was humanity's debt that had to be paid. Jesus could not come as something other than human and pay debt for humanity 
It had to be a descendant of Eve that crushed the serpent's head from the garden. It had to be a human who sat on the throne of David. If, if the author's talking primarily to Jewish people, they're going to define the kingdom of God by, da- by the throne of David. It had to be a human who was going to be David's heir. It had to be a true Israelite who would fulfill the promises to Israel. For the sake of time, I'm not going to, but we could walk through the second half of Romans 5 and show how Paul very, I mean, in great detail, it's not just like one line, but it's point by point as he goes down and says, this is the way Jesus is like Adam, the second and better Adam. In Adam, we all have this identity of broken image bearers of God. But Christ was the unbroken image bearer of God. We look at our forefather Adam and we see great promise and potential and ultimately selfishness that creeped in. And we look at our own hearts and go, man, I feel downstream from that. And then we look at Christ and say, he was what we were intended to be. Not only fully God, but fully human. Jesus is fully God. He is not merely God. Jesus is fully man. He is not merely man. He encompasses both of those. So, because of our our association with Adam, we are fallen image bearers, but in Christ we can be counted righteous. I told you this is a little technical and theological, but hang with me. The third idea that we have to kind of be thinking about, and I I thought about just like not bringing this up at all, but I have to because it's in the text for all of Hebrews. And that's some idea of what is the kingdom of God eschatologically. Eschatology just means study of end times. And because of the times we have grown up in and come of age in, immediately we think about like all the coolest parts of Revelation where there's dragons and we're trying to figure out which bad guy in the world's going to be this bad guy in Revelation. We try to do all that, but to a first century Jew, that, that's not what eschatology would mean. To a first century Jew, it meant we are expecting God to send a king, a Messiah, who will implement good reign on earth, and that will be that end kingdom that will set all things right. And so we have to ask, well, is the kingdom of God a now thing or is the kingdom of God something we're waiting for? Another way to ask it would be, when is it that Jesus will make all things new? I look around and I go, I still see a lot of kingdom of Adam. Still see a lot of selfishness, a lot of brokenness. When can I expect to see the reign of the king set things right? A first century Jewish person would have associated the coming of the kingdom of God with the coming of the Messiah. So they're looking at Jesus going, well, there's the Messiah, right? So where's the kingdom? So I know that's a lot, but let's dig into the text now and deeply consider how these things fit together in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 starts off with, 
Man, something that if you're paying attention to like the tenses of the words, if you're paying attention to like where it, when is this happening, it, it, it'll set you back a little bit. It'll, it'll be a challenge. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So again, just like in chapter 1, the author is thinking about angels and, and saying, no, it, it's not other spiritual entities, it's Christ who is the king of, of the kingdom of God. And then, the, it's such, like, we could memorize this verse too, it's beautiful, but then if you look at it, you go, okay, what's this about? Something about the world to come. And for us, we automatically think, well, that hasn't started yet. If it's something that's yet to come, then it's out there. But that, so that sounds like the future. But we're told Jesus is the one God subjected, past tense, you with me? So the finished work of the cross is where this happens. God has already subjected the world to come to Christ. And then, just to make our heads explode a little more, the author of Hebrews says, of which we are now speaking. So this sounds like the present. So there's this future element. There's this world to come. There's this past element that there's no future winning that needs to take place. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has been put in, all, everything been put in subjection to him. But it's not just about the future. This is what we're talking about right now. As verse 1 started and said, you need to pay more attention. Guys, if we're going to walk faithfully with the Lord, we need to pay more attention to what, we're, what we've been taught. It's not just so that someday things will go well. But right now, this is what we're talking about right now. The future kingdom of God is what we're talking about right now. And if you need to zone out a little bit, I'll skip to the end. There's two kingdoms, Adam and Christ. And every day you and I are making a decision where is living for Christ, living in the kingdom of God, is that something for the future? I'm just going to do my Adam stuff for a while. I'm just going to live in selfishness and take the, 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 my position as an image bearer of God to mean I rule. And I'm going to make it about my kingdom and my choices and my, my, you know, good name and my wealth and my, 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 my. Or am I going to live in the kingdom of God right now with Jesus as my king right now in a world that is unfolding, that I anticipate seeing? There's going to be a time when the faith becomes sight. But I'm not waiting for that to be living as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So, how do we fit into all this? The author is going to take us on, a, on a, you know, a little journey through the Psalms. And more and more, look, this is really smart. If you are talking to Hebrew people who are steeped in the, the, the Hebrew scriptures of our Old Testament, he is going to, over and over through this book, he's going to take you back and say, look, this is not new stuff. This is stuff that's been here the whole time. Open up your Bible, the book of Psalms. Unwind the scroll of Psalms, and let's look. So, verse 6 is uh, quoting Psalm 8. 
And it's familiar. This is something that, that you've probably heard before. And I love how the author says, it has been testified somewhere. He knows full well where this is from. But he doesn't want to put the emphasis on who said it as a person. He wants to put the emphasis on God. This has been the testimony that God gave our people. So, so it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So Psalm 8 is a reflection on the grandeur and the immensity of the universe that God created and the apparent insignificant of humans. But it's also a reflection on the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3. It leaves you going, we seem so insignificant. And this is like something that is pretty common to hear. When I think about all the stars, when I think about all the planets we haven't even seen yet, as we're getting images back from satellites and telescopes, and we look at how big, and we've all seen that little blue dot picture, right? And you go, oh my gosh, like the universe is so, maybe like it's not that big a deal that my knee hurts, you know what I mean? But also, we see God's attention and love and role that he has given humans. And it leaves you going, God, what is man that you would pay attention to us? The author of Hebrews wants us to remember who we are so he can invite us to be who we are in Christ. So Psalm 8 is clearly about us. And there's discussion on this, like, as you just roll through this carefully, you start to go, which hymn are we talking about? Who's the hymn in this line? Is this mankind? Is this people? Is this Adam? Or is this Jesus? At some point, clearly, we're talking about Jesus here, but the author wants us to start thinking about us so we can think about who we are in Christ. Here's what I think is going on as the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. I think Psalm 8 is being quoted like a mirror to us. Like, let's do a little thought experiment. Let's just put ourselves in a situation. Imagine you come in for a five-year job review. And five years ago, your boss said, I, I wrote this earlier in the week and I read it this morning and I said, well, that's ridiculous, but I'm not writing anything else. So here we go. <clears throat> let's say five years ago, you were brought in you're the hotshot. Everybody's excited you're here at the company. And your boss walked into your office on the first day and said, we brought you here to build a bridge. There's a river. We want you to build a bridge over it. Not only that, we hear you're a whiz kid with all the computer stuff. We want you to build a website uh, that's functional for our company. And not only that, but we think you've got the stuff, kid. We want you to grow our business by 500 customers. And imagine that five years later, you've done none of that. The bridge, not only is it not built, but the road leading up to it is in disrepair, hasn't been well-maintained. And not only is the website not up and going, but now your company's Facebook page is even a mess. <laughs> and now, not only have you not grown the company by 500 customers, but you've made decisions to tick off all the customers that you did have. You had a great job description, but you didn't fulfill it. And so if your boss came in at your five-year review 
And all he said was, you know, we brought you here to build that bridge. We brought you here to build a website. We brought you here to expand the company by 500 customers. You'd probably just start packing your desk. You probably wouldn't go, well, what's your point? (laughs) Rather, just mirroring your job description to you would be all you needed to understand your failure. And I think as the author of Hebrews highlights the greatness of Christ, he wants to take a minute and go, do you remember Psalm 8? Do you remember how the psalmist looked up and said, God, what is man that you have made him a little lower than the... God, you have set... uh, crowned humanity with glory and honor and set everything in subjection under humanity's feet. I mean, don't you just look at that and go, we're, humanity's crowned with glory and honor? Is that what I see in humanity? Crowned with glory and honor. Turns out we've acted in violent and sinful ways. We're debased and perverted most of the time. He has set creation under our feet. We've used our power to hurt other humans. Let greed define us. We were given this job description of expanding Eden, of the goodness of God spreading over the whole earth, and instead we've been selfish. And we've counted ourselves as just another animal. And we've acted like it. We have fought to expand our kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God. We've fought according to our might and our power instead of the Holy Spirit working in us. We've lived by the law of the jungle. Might makes right and handsome and rich or what work, and that's just how we've lived as humans. And I think as the author quotes Psalm 8, we're supposed to look at that and go, man, what a broken image we are. What do we do from here? I think there's supposed to be a desperation that sets in as we look at the glory and majesty of Christ and then we look at us according to the job description that God gave us and all of a sudden we are so mindful, I need a Savior. That in Christ there is a new option and a new kingdom. That human failure in Adam is no longer the only choice. This is what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. So the author continues, and this is, in Greek it's a little more pronounced than it is in English, but that first word in the next verse that says now, I think is very important. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him. I think now we're not only talking about humanity, we're talking about the man Jesus Christ. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. Guys, it's not just up to us anymore. It's not just that there's broken humanity. In Christ, there is true humanity. What people are supposed to be like. We look at Christ and we go, that's what I think is more like what Grant should be. 
Now everything has put in, be put under subjection to him. Everything, everything seen and unseen, nothing is outside his control. The author continues, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that is true. This is observable and this is also where the conflict is. This is where the conflict is for us and it's where the conflict is for the readers in the first century. Because I look and I go, yes, Jesus and his majesty, everything has been put under his feet. And then I look outside my neighborhood and I go, poof, still a mess. So the author explains that to us. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's still a mess. Yet there will be a day when our faith becomes sight. We do not see everything in subjection to him yet. But guys, we do see some. The kingdom of God is not invisible. It might not look like other kingdoms. It not, might not be winning wars and, and you know, growing an economy. But the kingdom of God is here. Wasn't that Jesus' first message announcing that the kingdom of God is, has drawn near to us? So this passage is wordy and confusing. That's why we only took a few verses this week. But at the end of the day, it is an invitation. Guys, the kingdom of God is here. And like a mustard seed, like yeast working through a lump of dough, it is growing. We're waiting for Christ's return, but we are not waiting for an opportunity to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And it comes down to each choice we make every day. There's a kingdom with Christ as the head. And it's a kingdom of forgiveness and love and service and suffering and sacrifice. And, and it, its citizens are filled with love and joy and peace. And, and, and they live according to loving God and loving other people. And there's another kingdom with Adam at the head. And it is filled with people who are kicking tail and taking names and being the big dog in the fight and impressing everybody else. Or on the bottom of that pile and just living a life of needless suffering. And there's a choice set before us today. Who's your king? The kingdom of God exists in us. In, Jesus, in those who say, I see the brokenness in the world. I see the, the propensity for those who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve to, to be selfish and to build their own kingdom and to be willing to step on people to get where they're going and to hold grudges and never say sorry or grant forgiveness and and make it all about their power and all about scorekeeping and all about like ah well you know people don't do things my way so I told them I see that but I'm going to reject that and instead I'm going to be like my king Jesus Verse 9 makes it pretty clear who verse 8 was talking about. Getting going, it says, At the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Do you see, like, the allusion to Psalm 8? Like how he wants to get us thinking about us, how God has made us a little lower than the angels, but overall creation. And then we're supposed to go, I don't think we're doing that great a job. And then he goes, but we do see him who for a little while became a man just like you, 
who for a little while left the throne in heaven so that he could be cloaked in your weakness. So that he could know what it's like to wake up with a sore back. So that he could know what it's like to be betrayed by his best friend. So that he could know what it's like to be crushed by the system that you feel crushed by all the time. Knows what it's like to show up in a town and just be greeted with, where are your taxes? He knows. Because for a little while, he was lower than the angels, just like you. But now, this is the first time in the book of Hebrews the author uses the word Jesus. But we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. We don't see everything under the kingdom of God, but we do see Jesus, the new Adam, the new way to be human. Made for a little while with all human frailty. But now, the author continues, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You think about the glory and honor that humanity was given at creation. Just, we didn't do anything to earn it. God just placed us in the garden and said, you're in charge. Name the animals and go from there. And then we see that Jesus entered into our human frailty and he is crowned in glory because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. With a crown he earned and we abdicated. We were told, would you spread the goodness of God over the earth? And we were like, nah, we'd rather fight and kill each other and do things our way. We abdicated that throne. We took the crown of glory and honor that God gave us and like said, now we're going to make this a crown of our own power. But Christ earned that crown because of the suffering of death. I think we're supposed to be shocked at the path of, to glory and honor in the life of Jesus. You know, I suppose I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scholar in any of these areas, but I suppose that, that in Greece you would earn honor and glory by your philosophical understanding, by a brilliant argument in explaining the world. And I imagine in Rome you earned glory and honor by military might and political prowess and even, you know, dying for the glory of Rome and, and, and like that. And I imagine in Jerusalem you earned glory and honor by looking down at others and having, you know, the you know, long curls and flattery and, and dressing in all the right robes and, and being sure everybody knew that you were the righteous one and that everybody else wasn't as good as you. And these were the, the normal pathways to glory and honor. And those are still the normal pathways to glory and honor. Make much of yourself and have people be impressed by you. But Jesus' path to glory and honor was suffering and death. The death that humanity deserved. The death that was promised in the Garden of Eden, born upon the Son of God at the cross. Verse 9 says that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Again, Paul writes a lot about in Adam we all die, in Christ we live. I love the word tasted. He tasted it. You know, all your other senses, you can kind of keep it arms away. You can feel it. You can smell it. You can see it. But 
to taste something is to internalize it. That Jesus fully experienced death. Adam sinned for all of us. Jesus paid the price for all of us. So when is the kingdom of God? When are the end times? The kingdom is now, and the end times have begun, if you have ears to hear. Here, in the kingdom that was inaugurated by Jesus, as we await its consummation, every day you wake up, you have a choice. Who's your king? Do you live as a citizen of King Jesus, or do you live downstream from the selfishness and sin of Adam? And again, we run the risk of having the same temptation that humans have always had. We like the title of citizens of God. Oh, I like calling myself a Christian, but when it comes time to make choices, it's selfishness and my rule and reign. No, every decision, every choice, there's two kingdoms. This is not new. All the way back to Mount Sinai, it's been... I set before you a choice, the blessing and the curse, life or death. You can choose how you make every decision. Under King Adam, under King Jesus. Every situation, you have a choice. Forgive or hold a grudge. Generosity or greed. Obedience. Or sin. We too quickly forget about the now in the now but not yet kingdom. We are selfishly awaiting glory. And the author of Hebrews would say that makes no sense at all. You await glory the same way Jesus earned it with a life of obedience sacrifice in the kingdom of God. There's a choice set before each one of us that's made pretty clear in Hebrews. And there might have been a time when you responded to an altar call or maybe you were at youth camp. Hey, if you want to become a Christian, your youth pastor is going to meet you off to the side. What you don't know is your youth pastor, he had been praying for that. That was his favorite thing that ever happened. At least it was mine. There might have been a time when you said, I choose Jesus. But I think the author of Hebrews would like to remind you that that should not have been a one-time commitment. But that every conversation, every interaction, every moment by moment in your day, you have the opportunity to say, I choose Jesus. I'm not going to live like Adam. I'm going to live like Jesus. Man, I wonder if you've made some Adam choices. I wonder if you look at parts of your life and go, there's totally selfishness there. I think about myself and myself alone. I've been trying to build my kingdom. I'm keeping score. There's people in my life. I could enumerate the last six things they did I didn't approve of, and I'm looking forward to a time to tell them when it's all dramatic and I have their attention. And I'm wondering... If today you might say yes to Jesus and say, that's kingdom of man stuff, I put that behind me. Instead, 
I'll respond with forgiveness, with generosity, with obedience. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us in your name. Lord, thank you for the, the suffering and death that, that we deserve, that you took. Lord, thank you for giving us not only uh, you know, punching our ticket to heaven, but God, thank you for giving us a new way to live with a new king, a new kingdom, a new ethic, a new, new decisions to make every day. And I pray, Lord, that more and more as we die to ourselves and we live for you, that we would experience the love, the joy, and the peace. Lord, there's no peace in living selfishly. There's only joy. There's only peace. There's only the good life as we live for you. So God, would you draw us to that? And Lord, if there are people in the room that just need to make a decision right now to give up some Adam stuff, give up some kingdom of man attitudes and instead follow you more fully. Lord, I pray that right now they'd, they'd be praying that. Lord, if somebody for the first time needs to follow you, I pray that even right now, Holy Spirit, you would grab a hold of their heart and they would turn from being their own king or queen and instead live for you. I love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.